rebellious generation out in the wilderness. So uh, we got into that, and people are questioning down in chapter 78, verse 19, they spoke against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? He might be a good chef, and he might be able to do certain things in in the normal culture, but can he spread a table in the wilderness? Is God big enough to do such a thing for his people? Uh, I had gotten sidetracked last week, and had come down about to that point, uh, and then we were out of time. So let's go on from verse 42, uh, because there's a lot more to say here uh, by David about circumstances, and they fit very nicely uh, in with our situation in the church today. Everything in this book does, really, and it doesn't matter whether we're in the prophecies, in the Psalms, and different parts of the New Testament, or where we are, it's all talking about everything coming together here at the end time. So, wherever we go, it seems that there is application, and it's quite striking how it fits the circumstances we find ourselves in right now with an awful lot of instruction about what not to do and what to do. So verse 23 says, Though he had commanded the clouds from above, and opened the doors of heaven, and had rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them of the corn of leaven, of heaven, excuse me, man did eat angels' food, he sent the meat to the full, caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. Uh, a reverend says the angel's food is interesting. Uh, God eats, and Christ said he'd drink wine again with us in the kingdom, and I don't know whether manna is a, a daily food or something around God's throne and with the angels, but uh, it's a reference is made to the manna being angel's food. So he gave them something special, for sure, and they just called it doctrine. That's what manna means in the Hebrew. They've never seen anything like that. <laughs> and I think there are an awful lot of things we are going to see in the next year or two or three or four or five that we've not seen before, because some of the scriptures indicate he's going to do new things on earth, and he, he has not done even to this point. So we have some things of the past to be replicated, and we have some things of the future that haven't been done yet, but we have an awful lot to look forward to uh, in the coming time. He raised uh, rained flesh also upon them as dust, and feathered fowls like the sand of the sea, manna and quail, all they could eat. And he let it fall in the midst of their camp, round about their habitations. So they did eat, and were well fed, for he gave them their own desire. They asked for meat, so they had quail meat. And not only that, they had lots of quail meat. Because God gave them their desire. This is what you want, this is what you have. He doesn't always do that, because sometimes we want something that is illegal or not ours to have, but in this case, it wasn't illegal. He'd given them manna, which I'm sure contained everything they needed 
for to maintain their health. Uh, but that wasn't enough. They wanted meat, and I, I guess I could understand that. Uh, we're corn of carnivores basically by nature, unless we get all messed up somehow and think we ought to just eat broccoli and carrots. But uh, that's what they wanted, and he gave them their heart's desire. They were not estranged from their life. But while their meat was yet in their mouth, didn't change their attitude overall. They had a lousy one, and they asked for meat, and as they ate their meat, their attitude didn't change. So what good does it do, God, to give us what we want if it's not going to have an effect on us in a, a serious spiritual way? It would maintain the same selfish, self-centered, ego, egoistic uh, attitudes that mankind tends to have. So, sometimes giving us what we want is in the answer either. Their lust just continues. And while the meat was yet in their mouth, they hadn't swallowed the last bite yet of their dinner, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. For all this they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous work. That's kind of amazing in a way, isn't it? That you give them something that's good for them that will sustain them and keep them healthy and then they want meat, so you give them meat. So they have everything they need to eat, and they have water to drink at this time. And they still don't change their attitude. For all this, they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. Look what he had just done. And as they swallowed the last bite, they started putting him down again. Therefore, their days did he consume in vanity, and their years in trouble. So they were going to go through 40 full years of all kinds of trouble, and deprivation, and difficulty, and wandering about. And they brought it on themselves, completely. It wasn't his fault. He gave them everything they needed from the time the Passover lamb was slain, to deliverance, to the Red Sea, to parting the waters, to giving them water out of a rock, to bring in the wilderness so many quail they couldn't eat them all, as well as manna that was in as great a supply as they could possibly eat. But that wasn't enough. God was still an unkind, unmerciful God in their view. When he slew them, they stalked him. And they returned and inquired early after God. Notice the contrast. <clears throat> when God blesses, people don't pay much attention to it. Uh, things are going well. Uh, don't need God at the moment. And then when he began to curse them and slaughter them, they turned to God. He's using the same thing here at the end time that he used then. Uh, giving us the blessing of this continent and this earth overall for everybody in, in terms of uh, all mankind. And yet we've turned from God so far we have no idea who he is 
as a global population. And even in Israel, very few people know God anymore. Just those that he called out and gave the truth. And there aren't very many of them. And even they got skewed out because of attitudes like these people had. So got for granted, lukewarm, and self-righteous. And he had no choice, brethren. He spewed us out, and he's about to spew our nation out. That's coming upon us very quickly now. And that is the only thing that will cause them to seek him. So whoever, whoever is left of this great holocaust to come are essentially going to turn to God and be ready to go into the millennium. But even there, there are going to be some people, apparently, according to Zechariah 14, who won't come up to the beach. And he'll have to shut the rain off. Human beings are pretty stubborn and stiff-necked and self-righteous as a whole, and all of us really as individuals. Why did Christ say, there is none good, it's not one? <laughs> By nature, we are certainly not good. The only way we're good is if we respond to him and his spirit and walk in it in spite of ourselves. That's the only way we're any good. So when he began to slay them, verse 35, they remembered that God was their rock and the high God their redeemer. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongues. So now they recognize him, but not worship with their heart, just lying lips. For their heart was not right with him. Neither were they steadfast in his covenant. They weren't going to do what he said. They had their own things they wanted to do. And that was it. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yes, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. That's a, it doesn't cover <coughs> all the circumstances, but it's a mighty powerful statement. The many times he turned his anger away. How often do we do things or think things or say things that might provoke God, and yet he understands our praying and doesn't let all his anger loose. He holds it back. He forgives. Uh, what an incredible God. But sooner or later, we have to do what he says if he's going to save us. <laughs> so many times he turned his anger away and did not allow his wrath to be stirred up. <clears throat> he held himself back, in other words. Okay, uh, he'd say to himself, don't let this get to you. Be patient. And since he is a patient being, he was able to do that. Sometimes we just let it go and fly off the handle and whatever comes out, comes out. But he can control what he allows to occur. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes away and comes not again. We're just flesh. We live a certain time on this earth, not very long, really. And 
like the wind, we just go on and are buried and forgotten very shortly. And he remembered that. How often did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yet they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. I circled limited there a long, long time ago because it struck me how we can limit God. It is our attitudes that keep him back from blessing and taking care of us in the way that he would like to. By nature, he is generous and loving and kind and likes to give gifts, likes to do things for us that are pleasant. Every good and perfect gift comes from God in heaven. So, that's what he wants, but we limit him by our attitudes. When when we are not following him with our heart, how can he just keep blessing us and then we think we're doing okay? He, he just can't do it. So it is a limit. He is not limited. It is we who put a limit there that is required if we are to be part of his kingdom. He wants us in his kingdom. And what we do limits him from letting us be there. Because he has laid down uh, all the conditions whereby we can be in his kingdom. He tells us there in Revelation 21, there's a certain class of people who won't be able to come into the new Jerusalem. And he tells us there in chapter 22, right at the end of the book, that uh, the whoremongers, the adulterers, the liars, the thieves, uh, and it goes on and makes different of the commandments. He says those people won't be there. So if we continue to do all those things, it limits his ability by the limit he placed. So God himself is not limited in what he can do, but he has limited himself in what he will do. He's had enough of Satan. He's had enough of demons. He's had enough of lousy attitudes in the universe. And he is going to limit that so that that cannot increase. He's going to put those away so that they cannot affect anyone, anywhere, that was a part of his kingdom. And he does not want to add to their numbers, so he has created, or will have, he lays a fire to take care of them. They'll just be burned up and forgotten. So there are limits that are there in what he is willing to do. He's not limited in the sense that he couldn't give them eternal life. He could. But he didn't want to, doesn't want them to have it under the wrong condition. As you'll recall, that's why he put Adam and Eve out of the garden of Eden. There were two trees. They ate of the one of good and evil, and the other was the tree of life. And had they partaken of it, he would have, by his decree, he had to give them eternal life. And he wasn't about to give them that in their sinful condition. So he put them out of the garden and didn't let them back in there where they could get a hold of it. Because who of us, if he thought he could live forever, would eat off of a tree of life? Uh, we don't want to die. We want to live. God wants us to live. 
but he doesn't want us to live like we are forever and ever and have effect upon all the other beings in the heavens and earth and kingdom if it's a bad, wrong effect. So that's how he limits himself. He's not going to have that. Uh, verse 42, they remembered, remembered not his hand in the day when he delivered them from their enemy. We tend to be kind of short-term memory <laughs> as human beings. It's easy to forget the things that God has done. We forget healings he's done with our children. We forget deliverance during third tithe year sometimes. We forget all kinds of blessings that God has given us. And even the knowledge and understanding we have. And we just don't give him credit. They didn't either. So they didn't remember his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan. And it turned their rivers into blood and their blood that they could not drink. Speaking of the things that happened prior to their deliverance. He sent different sorts of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. So remember, he let the Israelites go through the first few of those, so that they might have a taste of what it's like to be ungodly. And when God's wrath is poured out, what happens? So they got to experience some of that, and it wasn't much fun. Then he made a difference which should have caught their attention immediately and powerfully, that he's going to treat these people this way, but he's not going to treat us that way anymore. He got worse for them and better for Israel. And then he got them out of there. But they forgot that. What a, what a powerful deliverance, and yet they forgot it. Can you go back to your life and look at points in your life where you know God delivered you, where you know God did something for you, when God began to call you, and the events that occurred then, and how your mind was open. I remember so many times my little children being healed. Those things are there. And I know people who've been in our own little congregation who had their kids healed from near death or death, and then forgot the source of that. They got away from the church where God had worked through and decided they knew better, they could do better. <coughs> oh, how we are. He, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away. Now let's go on down. Uh, verse 40. Oh, I've already got through that. Uh, 43. He wrought his wonders we were just talking about. Turned the rivers to blood and flies and frogs and uh, the caterpillars and the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up 
their cattle also to the hail, and their flocks to hot thunderbolts. And the Israelites, remember, were sitting there watching that happen. They were seeing it occur. That should have been so indelibly imprinted in their memories that they could never forget it. But you know, you can forget things of the past so very easily if you have something else in front of you you want, or a different direction you want to go, or whatever, and you forget. So it needs to be brought back to had to be brought back to their attention, and it needs to come to our attention. Verse 50, he made a way to his anger. He spared not their soul from death, but gave their life over to the pestilence. And then the firstborn, he smote all of them, the chief of their strength, and the tabernacles of Ham. Ham was of, uh, or the Mitzrayites were of the people of Ham. They were black people. Hollywood hasn't learned that yet in any of their movies, but the Bible clearly states it, that Israel was in the captivity of the black people. And now it's been turned around, and Israel in these last two or three hundred years have been, uh, had some black people in captivity. Uh, we're going to do reparations with the both directions. 430 years in the land of Ham, and a much, much shorter time, and very, very few by comparison, black people here who have been in slavery. I'm not saying they should have been, don't get me wrong, this isn't a political statement, but uh, this, this coin has two sides. And we were in captivity to black people. Verse 52, but made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them on safely so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to the border of his sanctuary, even to this mountain, which his right hand had purchased. <clears throat> so I think, as I said in a couple of sermons ago about the last uh, day of unleavened bread, they should have gone, could have gone immediately from the Red Sea into the border of the Promised Land. It was that close. But they immediately murmured and complained, and in murmuring and complaining, uh, God, oh, no, you're not going in, got a wonder. And here we are, wandering as a church for 37 years now since Herbert Armstrong died. That's getting real close to 40, and it just may be, and I think I said it uh, three weeks ago, it just may be that the people who do not respond and repent of Laodicea will go through the whole tribulation. Uh, if it started now, it would be 40 years when it ended, or 40 over 40, actually, a little bit, but not much. We're in after, right after the 40th year. So there's a great deal of parallel between what happened then and what's happened now. He's going to take some of his people into uh, Zion for their protection 
through that time, and that's going to be the Philadelphia era of the church. Philadelphia is going to be made up of a few names out of now-dead Sardis and of a 10% remnant of the uh, of the uh, Laodiceans who, who repent. Laodiceans, I mean, the Philadelphian church does not yet exist. <laughs> it will exist when God brings the leadership and brings the remnant of his true church together to do the end-time work, and they're the ones, he says, he will protect from the tribulation. The rest will go into it, and that's going to make it just about 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. God does repeat certain things. So verse 54 tells us, they were there at the border of his sanctuary, where he could give them the promised land, even to this mountain where they were speaking. And that may have been from the Mount of Jerusalem, may have been from Mount Zion, I'm not sure where they were at this point, but it was one of those two, which his right hand had purchased. He cast out the heathen also before them, and divided them an inheritance by line, and made the tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. Now he's going to do the same thing here at the end, with Zion and Jerusalem, <coughs> the inhabitants <coughs> are going to have to go away in order for his temple to be built. They can't still be there. So we're looking for some of the same things to happen. Uh, yet, they tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not his testimonies. They had a fresh start after 40 years, their children, who had witnessed all of this, had grown up, and they went in with Joshua to the Promised Land. And first city they took, someone did not pay attention to God, Achan, and as a result, quite a few Israelites died because of his rebellion. And once it was figured out who had done it, and they killed him and all his family, the plague ceased. So even right there, at the crossing of the Jordan, God backed it up in the spring flood time so that the waters couldn't keep coming down and the ones below just drained on off. They stood there and gathered rocks out of the river and placed them as a monument on the far side. And yet, it didn't take them long from there to go back to their sinful ways. Kept not his testimonies. Verse 57, but turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside.
please enter your participant or moderator code followed by the pound key. Please say your name followed by the pound key. And there is a great danger there because look at what happened in the past. When he blessed them, they cursed him. Muted. And then he had to curse them. And they had to repent. And then they had to be forgiven and delivered again. He warns about that to you and me. He's talking to us. He's not talking to anybody but you and me there. By you and me, I mean to the whole remnant that will be gathered out. But uh, I think we are part of it. I hope we're part of it, and I hope we don't disqualify ourselves from becoming a part of it, which is possible. Nobody has it made. Our attitudes have to be right. So this is a very much prophecy for today. Verse 59, when God heard this, he was angry and greatly abhorred Israel. So then he forsook the tabernacles of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hands. Now God is an emotional being. He has good emotions. He has great control over his emotions. But if you read the scriptures, you'll find that he has another side, and that is that he can become very angry. Because he wants things to be decent and in order and done according to his way that produces peace. And when we go the way that produces anything negative, it upsets him. And he does something about it. And delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. Israel, as far as men are concerned, were his strength and his glory. And because of attitude, he gave them over to the sword, verse 62, and was angry with his inheritance. And he goes on and talks about it. The fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given to marriage. They went to war. They got destroyed. Didn't have anybody, the girls didn't have anybody to marry. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. That's quite a statement there. If you have a husband and he dies, normally there's lamentation and mourning and hurt and adjustment. But these people have become so wicked, and perhaps the widows understood why those priests were dying, it was rebellion against God. I hope we're still connected. Okay, I guess so. So the widows weren't all that upset when the priest died because they were unjust, unrighteous men. Then the eternal awaked as one out of sleep, and like a mighty man that shouts by reason of wine, now, he wasn't drunk, <coughs> but he uses an example there, because probably in our lives, 
vast majority of us at least, <clears throat> if someone gets drunken and out of control and boisterous and angry and mean, uh, that's what often happens with somebody who's truly drunk. So he says, God's awake like that kind of man, and he was ready to do some fighting. And he smote his enemies in the hinder parts. He put them to a perpetual reproach. The hinder parts were because they were getting their behinds out of there, ahead of him, and that's the target that he had. He put them to reproach. Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim. So, they had disqualified themselves. So what did he do? He chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. And David was of Judah. And he built his sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth, which he had established forever. Uh, look at Zion today. You've, you've been there. Look at how majestic it is, how wonderful it is. That's his sanctuary, like high palaces. He chose David, also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. Now, whether that means it was in the springtime, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that that's the case, because the ewes give birth to the lambs in the springtime normally, and that's when David was following them, and then would be the springtime when he was taken away. doesn't say that in so many words, but I think it's implied. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart, and guided them by the skillfulness, skillfulness of his hands. David had learned a lot out there herding sheep. Uh, he maybe have learned a lot from his father Jesse, but uh, he came to know God, I think, by looking at the stars at night and by seeing the things that God had made and his creation all around him and how it was all interwoven and such a, a beautiful thing that God has done. And... He learned a lot about God and then tried to lead people in a godly fashion the way God would do it, apart from the way Saul had done it. Chapter 79, then. This continues. I want to go a little further here. O God, the heathen are coming to your inheritance. Your holy temple have they defiled. They have laid Jerusalem on heaps. I think Pasadena and even Big Sandy and Brickywood in one sense were uh, a modern time temple that God had raised up. In fact, the house for God was dedicated uh, to the great God uh, there in Pasadena. Well, even took over when Herbert Armstrong died and they sold it to the outright heathen, and it's all gone now. It's just all gone. You drive by there, and it isn't by any means the place that it used to be. It laid Jerusalem on heaps. And remember that uh, Jerusalem is referring to the church there in Hebrews 12, 29, and 30. Uh, 
the church is Jerusalem. It is Zion. Uh, there are a lot of meanings. There is a physical site of Jerusalem, a physical site of Zion, and yet those who represent those two places uh, are also called Zion and Jerusalem. And those who destroyed worldwide have laid Jerusalem on each of the churches. Each of the spiritually dead bodies, injured bodies, sick bodies, who have gone away. Worldwide died. That was Sardis. The dead bodies of thy servants have they given to the to the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of the saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood have they shed like water round about Jerusalem, and there was none to bury them. So people have just fallen under Satan's and demons' influence and false teachers. What this is talking about. The beasts of the earth aren't just lions and tigers. The beasts of the earth are demons and men led by demons. And we're going to see a whole lot more death of true Christians and even people who claim to be Christians who aren't true Christians, but they're going to be killed. This is a prophecy uh, that is in motion right now, today, in our nation. You, if you're a leftist, you can kill a Christian and get a pat on the hand. If you're a Christian and kill a leftist, you're liable to be put to death for it. Well, he gave the glory of his people into the enemy's hand. <clears throat> that's, that's what he's done. Then he says, we have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about. No? What are they? Who are they? There's nothing left. They're all destroyed and scattered. And somebody told me not too long ago, well, how are you doing with your eight, your congregation of eight? I didn't tell him it was more than double that. <laughs> but the point is made. Uh, we're a scorn. How long, Lord? Same question Habakkuk asked. How long will you be will you be angry forever? Shall your jealousy burn like fire? We've been going through this now for at least thirty-seven years, and it seems like a long, long time that it's been going on. How long is it going to continue? can't go on too much longer than won't be any of us left who remembered worldwide when it was at its best. And Zechariah says that there will be old men who can make that observation. Will your butt jealousy burn like fire forever? Pour out your wrath upon the heathen that have not known you. We've had his wrath poured out on us as a church for quite some time now. And now you're saying, turn it on the world. And it's being turned on the world. World War III is not a future event. It is something that is already happening and will spread into a vast fire from where it is today. But it's not just, it's not just lining up and making threats now. There's actual fighting going on, and it will spread. It will be World War III. 
So pour out your wrath on the heathen that have not known you. We've known you. Please, don't pour it out on us anymore. Well, what are we doing to cause his wrath to cease? We've read it many, many times. Repent, turn to him with our hearts, appreciate him, be thankful for what we do have, not unthankful for what we don't have. But thank him every day for the breath of life, for the opportunity, for the knowledge of his kingdom and his spirit by which we can overcome and grow and live forever. There's where our minds and hearts need to be. And then he will turn and pour that wrath upon the heathen instead of us. And it isn't very far away. The question is whether you or I or who will be the ones that he turns and smiles on. So on the heathen and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. And they've already laid Jacob waste in terms of the church, and now it's coming on the nation. And you can see it coming apart before your very eyes. It gets worse day by day by day. Oh, remember not against us former iniquities. Let thy tender mercies speedily protect us, for we are brought very low. And that's just where we are right now. David is writing an absolute prophecy, and you can see it happening before your very eyes to corroborate God's word, and that he knew a long time before you and I were born, thousands of years before, how things would be today and what our attitudes would be because we're what? We're human. And we have human nature. And we still have Satan around. And people tend to act and react the same way generation after generation by their carnal nature. So whichever time man from David, time David wrote this, read it, it fit them. And now it fits the end time church better than it has ever fit any time or any in the past. <clears throat> Please don't remember our iniquities. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. And deliver us and purge away our sins for your name's sake. Now that is a very strong and valid plea there. He has promised that he is going to deliver his people. <laughs> he has promised that he is going to turn and smile on them. He's promised things that are greater than occurred at the Red Sea. And now we can hold him to that and ask him to help us for his name's sake because he's the one that said he would do it. And his honor, his name, is bound up in that, like it is in, I think it's Isaiah 54, where he says the rainbow of Noah is commensurate to what he will do at the end. He says, what I'm going to do to you, in Isaiah 54 and 55, and I'm through there, like the Garden of Eden, is like the days of Noah with the rainbow. You'll remember it as much as that. And we still see that rainbow pretty often. 
so we can call of him to do it for his namesake. But it's pretty important if we call God's honor out for us to be the kind of people who he says, okay, I'll honor your request because you are obedient and humble and meek. If we come shaking our fist at him and say, I'm never going to tithe again because he didn't open the windows of heaven to me, he's not going to do anything for you. Verse 10, Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is their God? And that's what they say to us now. Where's their God? You know, been preaching all this for all these years. Where's their God? He's blessing us more than they're blessing them. They're saying things like that. What's the answer for us? Wait patiently. God will do what he says he will do. In the meantime, be humble, be meek, be self are serving of others, loving God with all our heart and loving our neighbors as ourselves, and that question will get answered. He will choose who he will bless and whom he will not bless. That's his business. But we need to give him every opportunity to be us for us to be the ones he blesses. Don't make it so hard for him. Verse 11, Let the sighing of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those, preserve you those that are appointed to die. And render unto our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach, wherewith they have reproached you, O eternal. So when people turn on people who are Sincerely seeking to serve God and put a reproach upon them and say, where's their God? They're not getting the answers they expect. God knew that was going to happen. And then it comes a point where we can say, turn it on them because they're the ones that are being rebellious against you. They're the ones that are trying to, let's say, steal your land, take it away from those that you gave it to and make it their own. On and on it goes. I mean, I'm talking here a little bit of our own group, but there are other people in other places going through the same kind of thing. We're going to be part of the blessed remnant when it is called. They're going, we're, we're all going through it if we're trying to truly seek God. <clears throat> people will say, well, you don't seem to be being blessed, so what you're doing can't be right. Well, maybe it can. It just takes until God is ready. And then he will do according to his word. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. So there's the attitude. Thank God so much for everything we've been given. And tell him that we want to do that forever. Give him honor and glory and power and hallelujah to his name forevermore. That's what he wants to hear. 
He doesn't want to hear, well, I'll obey you, but you got to do this for me. So it's a sign that, yeah, I, I want to see a sign that you're going to fulfill your word. I tithe. I better see a lot of money coming my way, buddy. There are people with that attitude. Instead of just saying, thank you, Father, for giving me ten-tenths of all that I have. You've given me everything I have, including the breath of life. Thank you. And if you want 10% of it back after having given it to me, wonderful. I'll do it with a thankful heart because I am so thankful for all you have given me. Wow. There's a whole lot of difference in that and saying, you better bless me. Let's do chapter 80, and that's all for today, uh, because there's a lot here. It's where I was headed in the first place when I thumbed on back and got into 77, and it's all so similar. But here in 80, he says, Give, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you that lead Joseph like a flock. You that dwell between the cherubim shine forth. So God is willing yet to lead his flock like a shepherd. Gently, kindly, lovingly, uh, we just have to do our part and not set our legs like a backsliding heifer as Hosea describes it. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. Return us again, O God, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. He describes it in Isaiah, how he will turn his face to us and smile on us and bless us. David's invoking the same promise. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You know, we, we can turn and we can try to serve God and we, we do hopefully the best we can and we still fall short. And we still have to pray, help us in spite of ourselves, because we'll never come up to his standard completely. We, as humans, with Satan around, we are simply limited in how far we can go. But if we work at it every day, and we overcome, and get some of it behind us, then he will turn and bless. Not when we're perfect, because... That would never happen. He doesn't wait to give you his Holy Spirit until you're perfect. All you have to do is begin to learn some of his things and repent and be baptized and he'll give you his spirit because you need that spirit to grow from spiritual childhood to spiritual maturity. So he'll give us the gifts we need uh, along the way. But at some point, he has to change his anger. There's a place in Isaiah 44 that says he will remove his anger in one day and forgive our sins in one day and begin to bless us. That's before he starts talking about the treasures of God at the end of uh, Isaiah 44 and into 45. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry? You feed them with the bread of tears and give them tears to drink in great measure. We're experiencing that off and on and through life, 
as we struggle to be righteous in an unrighteous world. You make us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies uh, laugh among themselves. Hey, this is all true. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. says that twice, verse 3 and here in verse 7. Uh, emphasizes it. Because he says he's going to do it there in the book of Isaiah, which is written after this. Then he continues, You have brought a, a vine out of Egypt, and you have cast out the heathen and planted it. So he planted the vine of righteousness. Isaiah 5 goes through and shows that it didn't produce right, so he had to cut it down. And then he established a, a new vine that Christ talked about on the night that he was being taken to be crucified. And said, cling to this vine. This is a new vine. You can't cling to physical Israel anymore. That won't get you anywhere. Cling to spiritual Israel. Verse 8, you have uh, brought a vine out of Egypt, I read that. Um, you prepare room before it, and did cause it to take deep wood, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs to the sea, and her branches to the river. Why have you then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? You can tie that in very closely with Isaiah 5. And you can also go back to Ezekiel 17, where he talks about worldwide church of God being planted as a vine, and she didn't grow into a stately cedar. Her vine became more of a bush and grew around her physical leader, Herbert Armstrong, and paid more attention to him in some respects than they did to God himself. And then how he was going to destroy worldwide and take a small green twig and plant it. And that will be Zerubbabel uh, planted over the remnant and it will grow into a stately tree instead of a bush that will look to God instead of to the physical leader. It's always been a danger and it's a danger that occurred in worldwide and he describes it there. So it's been broken down. Now, verse 13, The boar out of the wood does waste it, and the wild beast of the field does devour it. I think you could uh, use that analogy to Stan Rader, Joe Dukash and his son, and some others who stayed with them. They're wild animals out of the woods that rip and tear. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven, and behold, and visit this vine. But we're still connected as a vine with Christ, and we need to be producing fruits. And the vineyard which your right hand has planted, and the branch that you made strong for yourself, it is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. That's us. We were cut down with a fire of, of of many different kinds of fire. Fire just signifies that which hurts and burns and devours. It doesn't have to be necessarily a physical fire. And he had made uh, the church, worldwide church of God strong for him. 
And it became a strong organization. It became a worldwide organization. It became an organization that had a great deal of God's truth. Some things never learned, but most of it, the basics, it did. So he had made it strong. <coughs> it became weak. Let thy hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. And he says he's going to make Zerubbabel strong for himself, his right arm. So, so will we not go back uh, from you, quicken us, and we will call upon your name. We need him to stir us, to quicken us with his spirit. And he says that that's what he will do with the remnant there in Haggai. I will stir them to come to build my temple. He knows who's who and what's what. And he will stir the ones he wants there. Turn us again, O eternal God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved, says it for the third time there. Uh, a plea that's made three times, and God answers it in Isaiah, and he explains there in quite a bit of detail just how he's going to do it. And we've been over that many times, and we'll probably go over it some more. But here we are. These few chapters have just nailed it as to where we are spiritually as a, and as a church and where we need to go and where we need to be and how we need to respond to God. And if we have weak belief, we don't think he can do this, he can't do that, then go back to Egypt. Go back to the Red Sea. Go back to the Jordan backed up. Go back to Jericho, falling down as they came into the land and scaring the inhabitants of the promised land. Go back to the wonders he has wrought and fortify yourself with those so you can believe. Because he says, I'm going to do the same thing. I just read in these chapters and back in Exodus how he was a wall of fire how he was a cloud of smoke, how he protected them. <clears throat> and we reviewed right there in Isaiah 4, I was going to do the exact same thing with Zion in the wilderness. <clears throat> a wall of fire, Zechariah 2, and uh, Isaiah 4, a protection from the rain, from the heat, and we'll have the Garden of Eden. He even says that in Isaiah 52, I believe it is. Maybe 55. But if we turn it to the same Edenic conditions, do we have trouble believing and swallowing that? Review what God has done and prepare for him to do it again and prepare for you to be there to take part of it simply by turning to him wholeheartedly loving him above everything in your neighbor as yourself, and you will be there. End of transmission.